First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for your word today. Father, I thank you for the things that you have shown me in it, even this week. Father, I pray that you would be our teacher, or that you would speak to every one of our hearts through your word. Father, draw us closer to you. Increase our faith today, we pray, in your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the battle that he has fought and won for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles today, would you turn them with me to 2 Samuel chapter 19 that was just read for us. And as you're turning there, I don't know how many of you have heard uh, the expression that uh, was pretty popular a little while back, and, and I still hear it every now and, and, and then, uh, where people say the struggle is real. How many of you all have heard that? The struggle is real. Now, most of the time when we use that expression, we're, we're usually talking about relatively minor, everyday frustrations that we have to deal with, right? These are, these are like first world problems that we talk about when we say the struggle is real, right? Somebody will, will post uh, something on Facebook and they'll say, you know, I got up today and I made coffee and then I found out when I opened the refrigerator that my wife or my husband, God have mercy on their soul, used the last of the coffee creamer. Hashtag the struggle is real. Hashtag need my creamer to survive, right? And, and you know, somebody else will post a picture of their minivan. It has like 15 fast food bags. There's like the vestiges of Chick-fil-A waffle fries strewn about, right? Tons of other things. And then they'll say, you know, this is the life of a, a mom with six kids. The struggle is real. Right, Some of y'all even today may have thought, uh, I'm getting up, trying to get all my kids or my grandkids ready for church when it feels like it's 5 o'clock in the morning. The struggle is real. And, and we know that uh, these struggles, while they are real, are relatively minor as far as struggles go. But we also know that in this life there are some real battles that we have to fight that are a lot more serious than those struggles. Not only is the struggle real, but the battle is real. In fact, sometimes it feels like life is a constant battle, doesn't it? I don't know what your battle is today. Sometimes it feels like we're always battling something, whether it's parenting battles, whether it's marriage battles, whether it's financial battles, whether it's health battles, whether it's a battle with an extended family member or or friend, or that's not even to mention all the spiritual battles that we have to fight. We're in this series called I'm Broken. And because we are broken, because we live in a world that is broken, life really is a battle. And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about what we need to do in the midst of our battles. We're going to talk about how we can ultimately win the battle. 
As you listen to the Bible passage that was read for us a moment ago, I think it almost goes without saying, there's a lot of battling, a lot of fighting taking place in this story. But after all, that's how God said the end of David's life was going to be. After his sin with Bathsheba in chapter 11, God told David in chapter 12 of this book that the sword would never depart from his house, that his family, his household will be marked by violence and bloodshed, and certainly that is the case. By this point, David has already survived what his son Absalom tried to do, and he tried to usurp his throne and his kingdom. David's army won that particular battle. Absalom was killed. The last time we read about how David returned to Jerusalem and to his palace, and you would think, okay, well, now the battle is over. The king has returned. Absalom is gone. Now everything's going to be fine. Everything should be smooth sailing from this point out, and yet what we read here today is the farthest thing from that. Right from the beginning of our text today, there is fighting that is going on. And so as we look at this part of David's life story and the battles he has to fight, I want us to ask and then try to answer three questions that arise from this story. Three questions about the battle. And the first question we need to think about is this. Why is life a constant battle? Why is life a constant battle? It sure seems like it is in our own lives sometimes, and it definitely is when you look at the life of King David here. Now, if you remember from last time, after David's war with Absalom had ended, there was some confusion among the ranks in Israel. There were some people who thought, okay, well, Absalom is now gone. Uh, We need to go and we need to bring King David back. We need to reinstall him as the king. And some other people weren't so sure about that and there was disagreement. And so David takes this step of reaching out to his own tribe, to the tribe of Judah, and says, you should be the first ones to bring me back. You're my own kin. You're my family. You need to take the initiative. And they listen to David, and they respond to him favorably, and they come down and they meet him at the Jordan River, and they begin to escort David on his way back to Jerusalem as they seek to reinstall him. But what we see right here at the end of chapter 19 is that by David doing that, by David in in a way showing some favoritism and reaching out to his own tribe and and getting them to be the ones that escorted him, by him not waiting for the other ten tribes to show up and to be a part of that process, there's there's a wedge that is driven between the tribe of Judah and the other ten tribes. Tribes And so they show up, and in verse 41, they, they confront the people of Judah. And they confront the king, and they say, what's going on here? He's our king also. We should have been a part of this. We should have also been here to, to, to reinstate the king. We should have been here too uh, to help lead him on his way up to Jerusalem. And the men of Judah say, well, listen, it's only right that we do this because he's our family. He's part of our tribe. And the men of Israel say, yeah, but we have ten tribes. We have ten shares in the king. You only have one. And then they say, and besides, we were the first ones to talk about bringing the king back, which is 
technically true. And so round and round we go, and you get the feeling that we're kind of just reading the Cliff Notes version here. But at the end of verse 43, we read that the words of Judah were fiercer than the words of Israel. In other words, the tribe of Judah won the argument. They may have won the argument, but in the process, they also started another civil war. Because look at verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, And there happened to be there a rebel, which means a, a worthless man, a scoundrel, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite, same tribe as Saul was from. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. And we really don't know who this man was named Sheba, but he can tell that there's a lot of dissatisfaction with David among the northern ten tribes. And so he takes advantage of that situation. And he blows the trumpet. And he declares that the, the north is going to secede from the Union, so to speak. This is almost like our civil war, except in our civil war, the south seceded from the north. Here, the north is seceding from the south. And they're saying, we don't have any share in this king, obviously, and so let's just go home. And Sheba declares himself as the de facto leader of this rebellion. At first, it seems like he's successful in this rebellion, but as we will see, it would be short-lived. And yet, this rebellion of Sheba, this breaking away of the north from the, from the south, from the tribe of Judah, is, is a foreshadowing of what we know in biblical history is going to follow. After David and after the reign of his son Solomon, in the days that followed that, Israel would be divided from Judah and the other ten tribes. Here, David makes it back to Jerusalem and to his palace and in verse 4, we read how he gives an assignment to his new general, Amasa. You might recall that David had replaced Joab, who kept disobeying his orders, and installed Amasa as his new general. And he gives him an assignment of going and rounding up the army, taking three days to do so, so that they could pursue Sheba and so they could put this rebellion down. But Amasa is not able to complete the assignment within three days. And so at the end of three days, David has no idea where he is. And so he turns to someone else, turns to Abishai, Joab's brother, and he says, all right, well, you go, and you take my mighty men, and you go right now, and you hunt down Sheba. And so Abishai takes the mighty men, and Joab, of course, goes with them, but Joab, David's former general, has revenge on his mind. He didn't like the fact that he had been removed from being David's general, and he wants to get a hold of Amasa and take him out and get his place back as David's commanding officer. Look at that portion of the story with me, starting in verse 8. It says, When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. And then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, in his left hand. And he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground. He did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. 
Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the men saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him. When he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. When he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba the son of of Bikri. So Amasa was out trying to rally the troops for King David, and he ends up meeting Joab and the mighty men. And Joab walks forward as if he's greeting Amasa, and as he walks forward, his sword falls out. Now, he doesn't explicitly say this, but you get the impression that it wasn't an accident that his sword fell out on the ground. It gave him the opportunity to reach down and pick up the sword with his left hand, which wouldn't have been considered a threat because that wasn't the hand that you fought with. And so he reached down as if he was just trying to pick up his sword. He reaches out his right hand and grabs his beard. Now, I don't know if I'd particularly like that if someone did that to me, but that was a a traditional greeting. As he grabbed that, he prepared to kiss him. But Amasa doesn't realize that Joab has that sword in his left hand. And it reminds me of the story of a man named Ehud, a left-handed man that we read about in the book of Judges. And the same deception works here. And Joab, who is a ruthless soldier, only needs to strike him once. And Amasa, who is actually his first cousin, is murdered in cold blood by Joab. And you can just see the hold that Joab has on all the other soldiers because even though they've just witnessed him killing in cold blood the person that David had put in charge of the army, one of the soldiers says, all right, well, if you're for David, then follow Joab. And so Joab is in charge again. No matter what David tries to do to remove Joab from his position, He cannot get him out of this position. He is going to be the general of this army, and he is until David's death. As the men are beginning to pursue Sheba again, we find out that what's happening here is often, uh, it's kind of like what happens on the interstate, right? When there's an accident, everybody rubbernecks and slows down because they want to look at the accident and see what happens, and all the cars back up, and that's kind of what's happening Here, people keep stopping to look at Amasa when they walk down the road. And so they literally have to drag him off the highway and put a covering over him so that they can keep moving. And Joab's men are saying, nothing to see here, just move it along. And and they pursue Sheba on the road. So already in this story, there has been a lot of fighting. There has already been bloodshed in this story. And just to prepare you, uh, we're not even through all of it yet. Right? There's still going to be a rebel who loses his head. There's going to be seven guys who are going to be hung. There's going to be four giants who are going to be destroyed before we're through today. This is not a pretty picture. This story is one battle after the next. But again, our lives aren't a whole lot different from that, are they? Now, hopefully the violence level in the battles in your life is not at the same place as it is here, or hopefully you would not still be rock- walking around the streets freely, but would be locked up somewhere. But we all still have battles in our lives. Where do these battles come from? Why is life a constant battle? And we know in a broad sense that battles exist because of sin. Because of our sin, Because of the sins of others. But in the New Testament, James gets even a little bit more specific about that. Look at these words from James chapter 4 with me. He says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? 
Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. You know, so much of what James is talking about in that passage is what we see going on in this story and the actions of David and Joab and Sheba. We've seen all of these things. We have seen lust at play in this story. We have seen desire for pleasure. We've seen coveting and and, and jealousy. We've seen, in a nutshell, sin. And wherever we see sin, conflict, wars, and fights will follow. We see the same thing today because we're not any different, are we, than David and Joab and all the rest. We're sinners also. We're broken people. And because we are, the battle is real. The fighting and the conflict that we see, even sometimes in our marriages, is because of sin. Sin like these that James is talking about, like pride and and jealousy and coveting selfishness because oftentimes even as Christians even though we know what the Bible tells us to do we're not willing to put the needs of our spouse ahead of our own as parents we see fights breaking out between our children for the very same reasons because of jealousy and selfishness and and pride And of course, when we look at the world as a whole, we shouldn't be surprised that we see fighting and conflict breaking out on the world's stage. Because just like we see here in David's story, sin always does this. It always leads to conflict. Of course, one thing we need to remember when we're in the middle of the battle is that our real enemy is never another person. Our real enemy is Satan. Remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6. He said, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, against other people. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so, friend, even though you may feel like right now your marriage is a war zone, the reality is your spouse is ultimately not your enemy. No. Neither your spouse or your co-worker or your neighbor is your real enemy, our real enemy is Satan. And he's always working, isn't he, to bring conflict, to bring destruction into every relationship that he can get his hands on. And as long as he is still prowling about like a roaring lion, as long as we are still imperfect, broken people who sometimes fall into his schemes, the battle will still be raging. That leads us to the second question we need to think about. Will the battle ever stop? Will the battle ever stop? Because again, sometimes it seems like the battle never will stop. Until that is, it does. Here in David's story, at least this particular battle, this one battle against the rebel named Sheba does end. And it ends pretty decisively. 
In verses 14 and 15, we read about how Joab and his men travel all over Israel chasing Sheba. They end up finding him holed up in a city called Abel, way up in the far north of the country near the city of Dan. And the fact that he is that far north really shows that he's on the run, that he doesn't have a whole lot of support And he is hiding out. And really the only people who are standing with him by this time are the members of his own clan, the members of his own family. And so Joab and his men come to the city of Abel and they're they're laying siege against the city and they're getting out their battering rams. They're about to knock down the wall and attack this city just so they can get to Sheba. And in verse 16, it says that a wise woman intervenes and stops this from happening. And ladies, isn't that sometimes what needs to take place, right? A wise woman needs to speak up before a couple of guys do something really stupid, right? Amen. Amen. That's what happens here. This woman calls out to Joab. She starts talking to him. And this conversation is kind of comical. As one person said, it's almost like she's reading to him from the Chamber of Commerce brochure for the city of Abel, right? She's talking about what a wonderful city it is, how this is a city that is renowned for its wisdom. People would come there to get their disputes handled, and how dare he uh, come and, and tear down this mother city in this area that has all these daughter villages around it. How could you possibly do that to our city? And Joab responds to that in verse 20, And he says, far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Now, there's a lot of irony in that statement for a man like Joab who has swallowed up and destroyed person after person after person in this story. To say, far be it from me to ever do that. But in this case, what he means is, I didn't come here to destroy your city. I came here after one man. His name is Sheba. He's he's raised up his hand against King David. And if you would just give him to us, that's who we came for. We'll leave you alone. And the woman says, deal. In fact, she says, I've got one better. I'm not just going to give him to you and let you kill him. Just wait a moment, and his noggin is going to come flying over the wall. She goes. She talks to everybody in the city. They agree with her. We could all die, or this guy could. And they say, let's go with him dying, right? And so the head comes flying over the wall, and that is it. This battle is over. Again, I know that sometimes it can feel like our battle is never going to be over. Especially feels like that when you're in the thick of it, doesn't it? That's when we need to remember the promises of God's word. One day the battle will be over because God has said so. Remember what he said way back in the third chapter of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, what he said to Satan, that serpent of old. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We know who the seed of the woman was. He was David's son, King Jesus, the virgin-born son of God. And yes, Satan bruised his heel on the cross, but what Satan didn't realize was that on the cross, Jesus was also winning a great victory over him. In fact, just as Sheba lost his head in this battle, Satan uh, will also suffer a head injury. It says here that his head will be crushed by Christ. And in fact, it already has been through Christ's victory on the cross. So even though right now the battle 
wages on. It can be tiring. It can be discouraging for us. But we need to remember this. We need to remember that Satan's doom is sure. That he has already been defeated. He's on death row. What he's doing now is he's trying to wreak as much havoc as he can until his execution day arrives. But one day, church, it will arrive. His day will come. King Jesus will be, as he is now, our conquering champion. And all of us who know him will get to live with him in a place of perfect peace. One day, the words that the angels sang to the shepherds in Bethlehem the night that Jesus was born will come true. Peace on earth and goodwill to men. We also need to remember, even right now, while we're in the middle of the battle, that the side that we are on, if we know Christ, is stronger than the opposition. I love this verse that John gives us in 1 John 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Does anybody believe that here this morning? I love the story in John Bunyan's classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, when the man called Christian, the main character in the story, was coming close to the porter's lodge, and as he walked down the road, he saw two roaring lions there beside the road. And he thought to himself, how can I defeat them? They're going to tear me to pieces. But as he came closer to the place where the lions were, the porter called out to him and told him, the lions are chained and are only put there to test your faith. Keep to the middle of the path, and no harm will come to you. And Satan is like a roaring lion, or maybe even two. But as Bunyan teaches us, we don't have to fear him because he is chained. And he cannot go one inch beyond the boundary that our Father has set for him. We can resist him. We can stand firm in our faith, knowing that he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. The battle will end one day. And in the meantime, we know who is in charge. Here's a third question for us to think about. We've said that the battle will one day be won, but what did it take for the battle to be won? First, let's look at chapter 21. Let's see what it took for David to win this battle on this particular day. Chapters 21 through 24 are really the epilogue of this book of 2 Samuel. And so uh, this material isn't necessarily being given to us in chronological order like the rest of this book. You might notice there in verse 1 of chapter 21, it says, uh, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. This happened sometime in the days or in the reign of David, but we're not told exactly when it took place. And David knows, based on Deuteronomy chapter 28 and elsewhere, that when there is a famine in God's country, that it could very well mean that God is disciplining his people, that God is trying to alert them to a sin that they have committed in the past. And so David seeks God to find out the reason why this famine is going on, and God tells him the reason. Look at the end of verse 1 with me. The Lord answered, it is because of Saul. And his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. 
In case we've forgotten who the Gibeonites were, there's a little historical footnote that the storyteller gives us there in verse 2. The king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. We won't take time to turn there, but back in Joshua chapter 9, 400 years before this, when Joshua was leading the Israelites into the promised land and God was driving out all of the Canaanite inhabitants of the land, these men from uh, Gibeah came and they uh, said to Joshua that they were uh, distant travelers that came from a distant land. They dressed like that to try to trick him and make them think that they lived a, a long way away from there. And so because they tricked him, Joshua made a covenant with them, a promise with them that he would never harm them or destroy them. Now when Joshua found out that he had been tricked, of course he did not love that, but he had already made a covenant in the name of the Lord to not kill them. And this covenant, this promise in the name of God had been in place for 400 years until Saul comes along and in typical King Saul fashion, who doesn't concern himself that much with keeping the word of God, wants to do something to show his zeal for God, his zeal for Israel. So he starts killing some of these foreigners and he disregards the fact that Israel had made a binding covenant in the name of God that could not be broken. Now, none of this happened on David's watch, of course. It happened years before. It was something that Saul had done, and yet nonetheless it happened. God, of course, remembered it. And now David knows. That's why this famine has come in his days on the land. Because there was a sin that Israel had committed in the past that they had never dealt with. And friend, that raises a question for us to think about. Is there a a sin in our life in the past we've never dealt with. First, I would just ask, if you're here, have you ever dealt with any of your sins? Have you ever taken all of your sins and brought them to Jesus and asked him to forgive you? Asked him to come into your life and become your savior, your king. Even if you have done that, even if you're here and you're a follower of Christ and You have at some point in the past asked the Lord to forgive you. Even as Christians, we need to keep a short record of accounts with the Lord, don't we? Is there a sin that you have not yet confessed to him? Or maybe something that you've confessed to him, he's forgiven you already for, but you hear his voice speaking to you that now he wants you to go and ask forgiveness for the person that you have hurt. Maybe even if it was years ago. Maybe he's asking you to go and to do what you can to make it right, to ask forgiveness, maybe even to return something that you have taken. You know, Zacchaeus did that when he came to know the Lord. He restored fourfold of what he had taken to everyone else. Maybe God's asking you to do what you can to make it right. And if he's speaking to you, don't delay your obedience to him. Delayed obedience is disobedience. You need to listen to what the Lord telling us to do. Well, here in our story, David reaches out to the Gibeonites and he asks them in verse 3, the end of verse 3, what shall I do for you and with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? The key word there is the word atonement. 
A word that means to, to cover, to provide a covering for sin. And so David is asking them, what can I do? What can we do as, as Israel to make this right? How can we pay for what Saul did to you? And they reply and they say, well, you can't give us any money to pay for it. That's not going to do. And really what I think they're saying in the next phrase is we don't have the authority to put anybody to death in Israel, but they're kind of hinting at what they really want to be done. They want a life to be given for a life. And David knows that, and so he asks them to just come out with it and say what they were asking him to do. And in verses 5 and 6, they do. They say, well, okay, pick seven descendants of Saul, and we'll hang them before the Lord in Saul's hometown. And David says, I'll do it. In verse 7, we read that David spared Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth, and he did that because of a covenant, a promise that he had made with Jonathan way back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And you know, in the middle of a very ugly story here, this is a beautiful part of this story that, as one person put it, Saul may have been a covenant breaker, but David here is a covenant keeper. And he reminds us of a greater king who would come who always keeps his promises. But then David has the heartbreaking task of choosing seven other descendants of Saul to be hung. And so he chooses them. One of them, incidentally, has the same name, Mephibosheth, but is a different man. But he hands these seven men over to the Gibeonites, and they hang them there. And apparently their bodies were left hanging there day after day until the Lord sent rain, until the famine left the land. In verse 10 and following, we read about this woman named Rizpah, who was the mother of two of the seven men who died. And she basically puts up a tent out there near these seven men, and day and night for possibly weeks or even months on end, her sole job is to keep the animals away from desecrating the bodies of her sons, the bodies of these other five men, David eventually hears about this honorable deed that she had done, and it moves him. And he goes and takes these seven men. He takes the bones of Saul and Jonathan. He gives them all an honorable burial in Saul's family cemetery. That's the story of this section, but what does it have to do with us? I believe several things. We're talking about how the battle was won, and first off, here's what we see in this story. The battle was won because a substitute died to pay the price that we owed. That's, that's what happened here, isn't it? Saul is the one who sinned. Saul is the one who broke the covenant that Israel had made with these people, but Saul was gone. And so Saul could not pay for it, and so seven of his descendants are now dying as a substitute for the death that Saul deserved to die. And that's, that's a struggle for us, isn't it, as we read this? Even many Bible scholars wrestle with this because it does say in Deuteronomy that a son should not be put to death for the sins of his father. And so we read this and we wonder, is this just or is this unjust? Should this have happened or, or not? And yet at the end of this story, we read that God sees the sacrifice that has been made and he hears their prayer and he lifts the famine off the land. God accepts this sacrifice. And so based on that, I would argue that what happened here is in keeping with what we read in Numbers 35, 33, which says that when blood was shed in the land, 
The only thing that would pay for it is the blood of another. We need to remember also that Saul was not doing what he did just as an individual. He was doing what he did as a representative of the whole nation, as the king. And so in the sin that Saul committed, all Israel was now implicated in his sin. All Israel now bore the guilt of what Saul had done. That's what these seven were paying for. And if we want to argue that that isn't fair, if we want to argue that we should not be represented by another, then of course we need to stop and to remember that's the only way it's possible for any of us to ever be saved. We were the ones who sinned. We were the ones who deserved to die. We were the ones who broke the covenant. But God sent another. God sent a substitute who was hung on the cross in our place to pay the price that we can never pay. Christ died as our substitute. The number of the men who died here was seven. Not because Saul had killed exactly seven, but because seven is the number of completeness. It's the number of perfection. And in the same way, Christ was our complete sacrifice. Christ was our perfect sacrifice who died to take our sins away. Let's look very quickly at the end of this story. Verse 15 of chapter 21. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants went with him down and fought against the Philistines. And David grew faint. Then Ishbi Binab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. And then Sipachai, the Hushathite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant, Again there was war at Gob, and the Philistines were Elphanan, son of Jair, Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. We've already seen that the battle was won because a substitute died to pay the price that we owed. Here we see that the battle was won because a champion came and defeated enemies that were too big for us to fight. Probably what we most know David for is when he, as a boy, slayed a giant named Goliath with nothing but his sling and his stone. And so it's fitting that the last story that we read before we get to David's songs at the end of this book involves more giant killing. And yet it is not David who is the one who personally kills the giants here. In fact, in verses 15 through 17, we read that David uh, almost gets killed by a giant himself until Abishai sweeps in at the last minute and saves David's life. And so they all tell David, your fighting days are over. You're too old to go out with us to the battlefield. We can't let anything happen to you. And we won't go into all the details of who these men were, but ultimately four giants were killed by David's Mighty men. One of them was a brother of Goliath. One of them was a man with 
It reminds me of the six-fingered man and the princess bride, but this man had six fingers on both of his hands and six toes on both of his feet, but whether he had 24 digits or not, this man, despite his great stature, was slayed and fell before David's men. You know, fighting a giant in general seems like a losing proposition, doesn't it? And the truth is, spiritually, on our own, we're a lot more like the David that we read about here in chapter 21, who had to be rescued, than we are like the David that we read about in 1 Samuel 17, who killed Goliath with his sling and his stone. Spiritually, we are up against giants that are too big for us to defeat. Giants of sin and death and hell. These giants were bearing down on us. They were about to bring their sword down on us once and for all. They had us in their clutches, and yet in God's perfect plan, just as Abishai swooped in at the last moment and saved David's life, our hero, our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, came to our rescue. Because at the cross, Jesus not only paid a sacrifice that we couldn't pay, he also won a victory that we could not win. He defeated enemies that were too big for us to fight. You know, as we look at this story as a whole today, I know, I'm I'm well aware as I studied this this week, this is not a pretty story. In fact, many parts of this story are horrifying for us to read, to think about. We read it and and just our gut reaction is, this is ugly, I, I don't like this. And yet, remember what David said to the Gibeonites. How can I make atonement? How can I pay for what we've done to you? Atonement is the payment given to cover the sin that has been committed. When you think about our atonement, when you think about what Jesus had to go through at the cross to pay for our sins, that wasn't pretty either. I agree with what Tim Chester has said. Atonement is ugly, because sin is ugly. And I think we're supposed to think about that. I think this story forces us to think about that. I don't really think God wants us to read this story and to go away feeling all hunky-dory about ourselves. I think God wants us to read this story and to sit here and to think about Amasa being stabbed and to think about Sheba losing his head and to think about these seven guys who were hung. We're supposed to sit here and realize how ugly sin is. That this is why it costs so much to pay for our sin. And I think where this story ultimately leaves us is standing there in front of the foot of the cross and looking at our Savior who suffered and who died. We're we're supposed to linger there. We're supposed to stay there and to look at it, to look at how ugly it is, to look at nails being driven through his hands and driven through his feet, to look at him hanging there for hours on end and to think, this is how ugly my sin is. This is what was required to pay for it. And then we're supposed to think, about how much our God must love us that he would give his one and only son to pay that kind of price for our sins. 
And let's remember that because he did it, because of the cross, that our battle has already been won. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for our beautiful Savior, who in spite of our brokenness, who in spite of the ugliness of our sin, is willing to go to the cross and to pay for it in full. Father, help us to linger there today. Help us to think about the weight of our sin, the ugliness of our sin, and yet to think also of the beauty of your love and your grace that has met us there. And so, Lord, as we go out into this world this week with battles to be fought, with a real enemy that is on the prowl, Father, help us to remember that the battle has been won through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for anyone in this room that hasn't yet trusted the Savior. And Father, they would come to you today to a king who is willing to die that we might be saved. And so we thank you today, we praise you today for the cross where our victory and our battle was won. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.